Hey, buddies. Hello, friends. Hello, amigos. It is I, your host, Jason Rudy, from Desperate Visions Productions, a Sacramento, California-based filmmaking company headed by yours truly since 2006. Uh, made about 12 films, uh, a little bit more, actually, for other people than that, but I count my output at 12, and uh, I got uh, at least another 12 or 15 headed down the road, getting ready to line up and all that good stuff, so be on the lookout for that. Um, this is episode 29, film 29, Eugenie. Um, it's a really cool film. I really liked it a lot. Um, Eric is uh, my co-host for this one again, the reviewer. We watched this uh, from the, um, let's see, what is this? This is the uh, Blue Underground DVD. Hopefully this will get a um, Blu-ray. There's a uh, interview with Jess Franco on the disc, and uh, it's a good copy of it. Uh, I believe it's the re-release that we talk about uh the production notes coming up here, the copy of it, but, um, yeah, this is, um, let's see, let me get some stuff here, uh, it's funny, even though I've done this now for, uh, what is it, 29 episodes, I still have my notes and all that stuff, because, you know, you got to follow that, that, uh, pattern and everything, oh, yeah, uh, coming from you today, from the other side of the microphone, here we go, okay, so, uh, let's see, this again is Eugenie, Film 29 and episode 29. Credits, we have Soldad Miranda, as billed as Suzanne Corday. Uh, she's also as Suzanne Corda in another film, but here it's Suzanne Corday. Um, she plays Eugenie Reddick, um, daughter of Albert Reddick, played by Paul Mueller. Um, since I've seen this film, I've read the novel by the Marquis de Sade, uh, Eugenie, and um, it's definitely quite different, as Franco has talked about in the um, little uh, interview deal on this DVD, that the f- novel would be unfilmable, but I, I, I disagree. Um, obviously, there's certain things you can't show, but the concept of it still is morally difficult, and in this one, it's her stepfather, which is a different than the novel. Anyway, back to the cast. Uh, Andres Monchal as um, Andre Monchal, and he plays Paul, a trumpeter, the one that she goes after. Uh, Greta Schmidt plays Kitty, an um, Austrian hitchhiker. Then uncredited is uh, Alice Arno, her first appearance in Franco film, as a sadomasochistic photo model, uh, their first victim. Um, Jesus Franco is in it as Attila Tanner, a writer. Uh, Marius Lesur is the man in the projection booth with Tanner. Karl-Heinz Meinschken is the, um, let's see, he's the director photographer in this, I think. Uh, no, he's, uh, well, he is in general, but not in this one. But, uh, yeah, he plays the uh, comic at nightclub. And then uh, Manuel Marino is the man watching nightclub comic. Um, this was in uh, Liechtenstein in France, 1970. Uh, alternative titles, Eugenie de Sade, uh, French-Belgium, theatrical poster and stills. Um, that's also on the DVD I have is Eugenie Desaad. It's almost like they just threw the Desaad name in there to like crowbar it in so you know what it is. But yeah, it's really just Eugenie. Uh, the Eurocene on-screen retitling, which is the one I have, is Eugenia, E-U-G-E-N-I-A. Instead of the E, it's just the A. Um, and they have um, Saad's Eugenia, Eurocene press sheet title. 
Then uh, Saw 2000 is the Italian theatrical title. Uh, let's see. Uh, production companies, uh, Prodif, Estes, Valus, and then Eurocene from Paris. Theatrical distributors, Eurocene, uh, Dicko Films of Brussels, BGF from Italy. Shooting dates on this uh, is a pretty quick one. Ran from January 21st to February 12th of 1970. Uh, premiered on um, Belgium in April 5th, 1973. Played uh, French Visa Issued was on September 10th, 1973. And most important to me, uh, the date of my birth is actually October 13th, 1973. This film played Italy and Rome on October 12th of 1973. And played France January 20th, my brother's birthday, in 1974, he was born in 76. Uh, theatrical running time, France, 85 minutes. Italy, 82 minutes. Uh, credits, I told you the cast already. Credits, the director, uh, Jess Franco. Screenplay, Jess Franco, based on the over of Donatini Alfonso de Sade. Adaptation by Jess Franco. Director of photography, Emmanuel Marino, as Mad Marin. Editor, Carissa Ambach. Music. Bruno Nicolai does an amazing score. He's one of my favorite uh, composers for film. Uh, continuity, Mike Gatton and Nicole Guterres has Mike Gatton on some prints. Makeup, Carol Bunk. Uh, let's see. Special consultant, Jess Franco as J.F. Manor. There's another alias for him. J.F. Manor, M-A-N-N-E-R. Colored by Eastman Color. Uh, let's see here. Music publisher, Giminelli. Okay, so yeah, uh, like I said, we, we have the uh, Anchor Bay one. Um, we talk about the film a little bit. So basically he made this uh, after he broke up with uh, Harry Allen Towers. Uh, the association ends, um, let's see, Franco's association with Towers, of course, this is uh, quoting from Murderous Passions, Delirious Cinema of Jesus Franco, Volume 1 by Stephen Thrower. Uh, Franco's association with Towers came to an end in 1970, according to Franco, because AIP wouldn't allow him to direct projects with other companies. Um, however, NAIP, however, as AIP handled only three Towers films, Justine, Venus and Furs, and The Bloody Judge, this explanation seems highly unlikely. For whatever reason, Franco parted from Towers with a number of mooted projects still unrealized. He was... Uh, they were thinking about doing with him Black Cobra with Vincent Price and Peter Cushing, which eventually saw production in 76, directed by Joe D'Amato as Brides in the Bath with Christopher Lee and Dennis Price. Uh, let's see. That's interesting. Jam Session with Rosano Brasi and Rosalba Neri, one of my favorites, and Dorian Gray with Marie Lindenhall, Herbert Lom, and Margaret Lee. Beautiful. The latter of which became an Italian movie directed by Massimo Della Mano and starring Helmut Berger. Uh, the Towers period was the closest Franco came to being a major international player. He could probably have made an even bigger international... Uh, oops, he could probably have made an even bigger splash were it not for the inconsistent and predictable Towers and his wayward approach to finance. With five films opening in cinemas in 1969, his evolving style of shooting was beginning to assume the awesome rapidity that would characterize his work throughout the decade to come. But then, just as suddenly as it had started, the relationship with Towers ended. At the dawn of a new decade, Franco's career took a turn that augmented a less elevated professional profile, but which led to his most artistically daring 
outrageous and provocative films of his career. Uh, life was not good for Franco. He had a home in Paris and Rome, between which he alternated, along with his wife Nicole and stepdaughters Caroline Riviera, Nicole's daughter from a previous marriage. Determined to do things his way, he wasted no time brooding over recent problems. Instead, he took the Marquis de Sade short story, Eugénie de Franval, which I even read, and crafted a script that reflected his ambitions far more accurately than his recent Marquis de Sade adaptations for Towers. The film was a stunning tour de force called Eugénie, also known as Eugénie de Sade. Franco and cameraman Manuel Marino began shooting in Berlin with Paul Mueller and Soldat Miranda during which the during the extreme wintry weather of January 1970. After a couple of weeks, having accumulated enough material to show potential investors and having also bagged a few extra scenes for Nightmares Come at Night at the same time, he turned to Euroscene for completion money, leading to a further shoot in Paris. Judging by the gray skies and leafless trees in the Paris footage, the French material must have been shot fairly soon after the German, probably no later than March of 1970. Uh, Eugenie is one of the most important films of Jess Franco's career. It addresses many of the concerns that would propel his work in the years to come and places center stage the blend of amorality, fear, and desire for which he would become notorious. Opening with a stunning scene depicting the two lead characters filming a snuff sex movie in an anonymous bedroom, this is Franco Unchained, taking his love of the Desaad way beyond the Harriel and Towers productions in a different level entirely. Throwing open the door to his most twisted fantasies, Eugenie is the utmost vindication of his decision to go it alone, leaving behind the safe harbor of Tower's B-movie empire and setting sail for a dark continent far more personal and challenging. So yeah, this film basically starts with like a... It's like a fake snuff film, or not fake, it's supposed to be a snuff film that uh, Eugenie and uh, her dad, her stepfather, are filming of a woman that they pick up, a blonde, and they... Uh, kill you know before the footage and franco is the writer watching the footage um there's another person involved in the dance of death intercut with the unfolding scene as a man watching the footage which is being projected in a private viewing theater as the woman dies so eugenie's credit sequence ends the man waves a hand at the projectionist to switch off the film the fellow watching a snuff movie for reasons we don't yet understand is played by Jess Franco himself. Audiences of the time were unlikely to realize that the lank-haired, bespectacled figure was actually the director of Eugenie, but nonetheless, nowadays we do know, and though it may play like a private joke, it's a joke which resonates rather as the home movies watched by the psychotic central character in Michael Powell's Peeping Tom take on an extra level of irony when we learn that Powell himself chose to play the cruel father in the Super 8 footage. Uh, Franco's role in Eugenie is the most fascinating of his many acting parts, with only Mathis Vogel in Exorcism, the sadist of Notre Dame, coming close. It's an extraordinarily frank admission of his own relationship to his fiction, as well as a provocation of as well as a provocation to our own. Franco is watching footage that him that he himself shot while playing a man watching real life murder with a moral fascination. The character doesn't flinch, but he, he doesn't cry out. He shows no sign of outrage or nausea. He simply smokes a cigarette, watches the footage, then departs. Refracted light from the projection, from the projector, sunburst around him, and we wonder if maybe he's just the director of a horror picture reviewing the day's material, or perhaps he was the cameraman all along. After all, we don't entirely see Mueller when his hands over the camera to Miranda. She just disappears from view while it, behind it while Mueller appears a second or two later. 
Copious shadows fall upon the bodies in the brightly lit hotel room, so there could be a fourth player in the room. This, of course, is the truth matter speaking. Frank was indeed actually handling the camera and casting a shadow, even though in the narrative it turns out to be that Miranda, that Miranda and Mueller failed the killing. The opening few minutes refused to answer our question and leave open a multitude of possibilities. As the murder footage ends, another man enters the viewing theater and informs the watcher that she is awake and can receive viewers. It generally becomes clear that we've just been watching. It is, in diegetic terms, snuff footage filmed by a young woman called Eugenie and her father, Albert Raddick, who have murdered an innocent woman for kicks. Frankel plays a character called Attila Tanner, a writer and intellectual obsessed with the couple who's been studying the film for his own reasons, having presumably been granted access by the police. However, in order to fully understand all this, we must watch another hour of the movie. That is what makes the opening sequence so daring, and Eugenie Franco sets out to disquiet us with what we've seen, and gradually does he elucidate his position regarding the morality, not only of screen violence, but the real-life act upon which it feeds. There could be no, shrink, sh- there could be no shrinking from the implications. Franco is a scholar of the Marquis de Sade, and the seedy, nasty sex, vicious antics of his character stand for more than just fleeting titillation. It's the self-awareness and reflectiveness that separates him from other filmmakers of his generation, such as Joe D'Amato, who plowed a similar furrow at times, but lacked a self-conscious, moral, amoral philosophy. A sadistic murderess entwined in a passionate... Okay, so here's basically what kind of Franco talks about the third act of the film, because it turns from basically Soldat and him being into the building and the killing and then her switching to falling in love with the guy at the end. Um, he says, uh, the story never quite manages to get inside the conflict between Eugenie's immorality and her sudden bout of consciousness. The only explanation that fits the facts is that she's been weak all along, allowing her father to exert complete control over her views and actions. I find this interpretation of Eugenie's character unsatisfying. Franco claims in the DVD interview that he likes creating multifaceted or at least two-sided characters, but the connective tissues that could sell this Janice-faced ending is absent. I simply don't believe in this version of Eugenie, a sadistic murderess entwined in a passionate love affair with her equally murderous father, suddenly falling like a bobblehead schoolgirl for the first good-looking young dope she meets. This transition is simply not sold to us. Where in the psychology, Jess... When interviewed, Franco said that the distributors <clears throat> thought the film was too dark, too perverse, and so it sat on the shelf unreleased for several years. It eventually scored a Parisian release in 1974. This still doesn't explain why the ending is so a, is such a total vault face. I regard it as a simple flaw in the writing. We need to know more about Eugenie's inner life in order to believe this disavowal of her father and all he stands for. Her love affair with Paul destroys the purity of the Raddick's incestuous bonds, leading to murder, vengeance with a pair of scissors, and suicide. Eugenie, we are led to believe, has come to her senses through the love of a good man. The wickedness, the the amorality, the will to destroy, the commitment to libertinage at all costs disperses like sea mist. And so the film, in its own peculiar way, becomes a cautionary tale of corruption and redemption. With a totally conventional moral ischemia. No one is beyond love and redemption, says the trailer, a adroitly picking up on the theme. An evil, selfish father corrupts his innocent daughter, a fate from which she is eventually saved by the love of a decent man. Self-pitying and humorless, but, de- but decent. 
Surely this is not what Franco wished to convey. The Sadian elements are so committed, so fully integrated in the rest of the story that the finale feels unnatural and insincere. A more fitting end would see Eugene kill her too controlling father during sex, realizing that the true libertine must work alone and set her own agenda. Eugenie, therefore, is a flawed Franco film, but in this case it's also so close to greatness that it's agony to see it fall apart in the last five minutes. Imagine if, you, if Eugenie decided to destroy Paul, not because her father told her to, but because she genuinely found him pathetic and stupid. Imagine if she then realized her own father's instructions were surplus to requirement, that the student had no further need of the teacher and so killed him too. Truly, Eugenie would be a black masterpiece. Perhaps the producers flatly refused to release a film with a down ending in which wickedness goes unpunished, or worse yet, is celebrated. Whatever, it's a fluffed ending. The rest of the stage and disturbing film, however, echoes through one's mind long afterwards. Uh, Eugenie is unlike any previous Franco film. Its minimalism, its purity of purpose, its darkness and perversity strip away the trade the trappings of horror, the lushness of Euro-erotica, and the pretensions of art cinema, leaving only the core of his sensibility. It's a film of the 1970s, whereas even the best of Franco's 1960s films were somehow wedded to the demands of an older kind of cinema. Till now, just Franco had been testing his mettle against the various genres he loved as a boy, learning how to make movies commercially, swiftly, and imaginatively. With Eugenie, however, a change occurs. Uh, the break with the past will not be a clean one. There were still a few stragglers and exceptions to come, especially in 1970 and 71. But in general, from here on, just Franco, the Spaniard who made a splash with musicals and spy stories and occasional horror flicks, settles down to shape something more precisely his own. He has honed his skills, chosen his themes, tasted freedom, and discovered the particular mood of dark, mesmeric eroticism that he will summon again and again in the years to come. In the 1960s, Franco learned how to make movies. In Eugenie, he learns how to make just Franco films. Franco on screen. Franco's role is dealt with in detail above. It's a shame that the choice of dubbing artist for the English language version is so inappropriate. Tanner should sound insinuating, sardonic, a little sly. Steady's a booming macho baritone. Uh, let's see... According to Franco scholar Robert Monell, Paul Mueller was unhappy with the film at the time. He informed me that he informed me in January 1970 shoot was in chaos over the lack of funds and the fact that the director was also filming at least one other project simultaneously, not to mention that there was no completed script, only last-minute pages handed to me and the cast after Franco had scribbled them on set. Alice Arno makes her first of many appearances for Franco here. She would become an essential member of the Franco repertory cast during the quick-fire productions of 1973. In a rare on-screen appearance, Euro-scene head honcho Marius Lesur can be glimpsed as the man who leans into the shot and whispers to Tanner while he's viewing the Radix snuff footage. The comedian telling awful gaps on stage in the club where the Radix established their alibi as Franco's friend and sometimes producer Carl Heinz Manchin while cameraman Manuel Marino, elegantly out of focus to the left of the screen, with neatly trimmed sideburns, can be seen in the audience. Uh, music. Uh, soundtracks by Bruno Nicolai, of course. Um, enough said. 
uh, locations uh, shot in Berlin, Paris. Um, where Radek residents, a few kilometers outside Berlin, the house where Paul and Eugenie conduct their affair can also be seen in Nightmares Come at Night. Um, Montchel and Miranda play lovers in that film too. The scene for both films were clearly shot simultaneously with pickups for Cachemiron during the Eugenie shoot. When the Radics visit Berlin, they attend the same locations we saw in Franco's Succubus. Suspice? I can't remember say this word. Specifically, a modern pedestrian bridge across Tanzurensia, overlooking the Kaiser Wilhelm Memorial Church, known to Berliners as the Gereskinschker. The footbridge is no longer there, but the raised shopping complex overlooking the church where the erratics are approached by Tanner remains. Note this is one of the rare Franco films not to be set by the sea. A frozen lake stands in for the usual seascapes. Uh, Tilla Tanner visits Eugene at the Martin Luther Hospital in Berlin. Um, on the way in the foray into France, the erratics stay at the Grand Ode Hotel de Lyon in Paris. For the murderous fashion shoot, the victim is seduced in what looks very much like a sound studio dressed to resemble a photographer's studio. There are cork tiles on the wall of the sort used for flattening room ambience in recording environments. Was the sequence perhaps shot in the film's dubbing theater? Scenes of the model agency were captured... Let's see where am I at? Scenes of the model agency were captured at the Paris offices of Eurocene, indicating that they were added later after the sewers came on board connections. Uh, Euro, Eugenie is the third of Franco's adaptations of Desaad, following Justine and Eugenie, the story of her journey into reversion. This time, the source material is Eugenie de Franval, a short story first published by Desaad in a 1799 collection, La Crèmes de l'Amour Nouvelle, Héros et Tragique. Paul is the third of Franco's doomed trumpet players, following Julius Smith in uh, Death Whistles the Blues and Jimmy and Venus and Furs. Yet another trumpet player will fall foul of disturbed young women in Franco's The Other Side of the Mirror, which the drinking game played by Radix also turned up in that film. On the wall of the model agency where the Radix pick up one of their victims is a poster for a Eurocene film, Paris in Konamu, a Mondo-style documentary about Parisian nightlife, which also starred Alice Arno, is directed by Pierre Chevillet, who often worked for your scene, marketing much of the same type of films as Franco, but with no discernible artistic and aesthetic dimension. Chevalier's films are terrible. Just try to sit through uh, Orloff and the Visible Man, uh, Mansion of Philippe Pardues, and Cornevay de Femmes. Uh, but they're interesting to watch as control experiments against which Franco's sup- superficially similar work of the same period can be gauged. Incredibly judging by the giant movie posters in the scene where Tanner confronts the Radix in Berlin, Dr. Shivago is still playing at the same cinema three years after Succubus. The huge, mede- the huge medieval iron neck pincher seen in Eugenie, the story of her journey into perversion, make a return appearance during the scene which Alice Arno, the way back again in Franco's infamous video Nasty Bloody Moon, which I caught too watching this before reading this. Um, other versions, the... Anamorphic DVD release of Eugenie from Blue Underground bears the on-screen title Eugenia, a 1984 copyright date, and frequently, though not always, dubbed Soldat Miranda as Eugenia rather than Eugenie. It would seem that 
Eurocene wanted to re-release the film and re-establish their copyright. Franco took the opportunity to sort out a glitch on the music track. At that point, the sewer whispers to Tanner's whispers in Tanner's ear. All other versions have the title Eugenie. Blue Underground marketed the film under the cover title Eugenia, Eugenie de Sade, a title drawn from a Belgian film poster, which to my knowledge never appeared as a theatrical screen title. Blue Underground DVD of Eugenie could almost be considered the definitive version for it, not for a couple of very curious details, which emerge from an English-language trailer included among the extras. The trailer bears the title Eugenia, but with the old Eugenie font, nitpickers, and borrows a musical theme from Eugenie, the story of her perver- of her journey into perversion, but what's really interesting is the presence of shots from two scenes not included in any currently available version of the film. In the first of these, we see Eugenie undressing and kneeling before an unknown older woman. The scene takes place in Eugenie's bedroom. Note the teddy bear and clock on the bedside table. In the other, we see Mueller throwing a woman on the bed in Eugenie's bedroom. The same woman. I think so. Both are wearing blue panties. Then rising to his feet and staring into the camera. At no point in any currently available version of the film does this older victim appear. Note, too, that the arrangement of books on the bedside table is identical to the scene in which we see Eugenie writhing on her bed in front of her father. This would suggest that the missing scenes were filmed contemporaneously, maybe even on the same day. If not, you would expect the pile of books to have been tilted away or at least rearranged. It would seem that at the same point in history, the film included another seduction, murder, possible of course the material was shot but never used it also possible that a longer cut of this essential film once played in the sex cinemas of europe one that currently eludes us on dvd and blu-ray so yeah that's basically what he has written this uh film has a big section in the book written to it because like i said it's such an important film a lot of cool pictures and uh yeah definitely something worth picking up um after watching this this became definitely one of my top five maybe top 10 but probably top five franco favorite franco films um along with uh uh, christina princess of eroticism i still haven't watched a version along the living dead it's like i know the extra footage kind of weakens the film i still don't watch it because of that but maybe i will but yeah that's definitely like my favorite and that's coming up here in a few episodes from now and uh of course uh, she killed an ecstasy and uh this and uh a few others, but, uh, yeah, we'll see. And those are the ones I've seen, you know, I mean, this is, uh, what is this now, episode 29, so I've probably seen, like, 45 Franco films out of the 174, 180, whatever, so, yeah, something like that, so, um, but, yeah, I'm looking forward to the ride ahead, so, this is a great film, Eugenie, check it out, um, we'll play the trailer after this, and then we will uh, have the review with Eric and myself reviewing the deal. Um, look for us on Facebook at uh, Franco Observer Podcast. Find us on Instagram at uh, Franco Observer Podcast. Uh, you can send any email, any questions you have, any correspondence, any suggestions, blah, 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 at uh, Franco Observer Podcast at yahoo.com um let's see what else you want to do i'm sorry franco observer at yahoo.com since i don't read my notes um yeah so find us at franco observer at yahoo.com to give us any 
emails. Also, uh, please download the episode. It increases the numbers, audience, and uh, rate and share on your favorite listening platform. We're on many platforms now. Keep adding more and more. Uh, it might be added to Amazon Music or Amazon Podcasts by now, too. Uh, I know, like, Stitcher we're on and uh, and uh, Apple Podcast um, and just, like, tons of more. It's a lot of them that I don't really follow, but when I launch this, I try to gauge as many different platforms worldwide so more people um, can find us in that because definitely I know people get in th- their uh, platforms they like and uh, it's easier to put your stuff in their platforms compared to making people search for things. So with this podcast, I wanted to make it easy for people to add and to please subscribe. Uh, we've got a few subscribers now. We know the podcast la- launches uh, every Wednesday morning, um, West Coast time, 1 a.m., but uh, East Coast time will be like 4 a.m., so you know every Wednesday morning when you get up, you have a Franco Observer podcast. And then, of course, we uh, will have um, additional one a month on holidays or on special days, like the last one on uh, the passing of Jess Franco. Uh, they commemorate that. The April 2nd episode was an extra one, um, episode 28, so we knocked that out. But yeah, so anyway, subscribe to us. Check us out. Uh, rate, subscribe, tell your friends. Let's get more listeners. Uh, we have good numbers. It's pretty steady. We want to keep adding people, so definitely we need new listeners. So tell everybody you know that likes Franco about this podcast. Uh, I'm going to be here for a while. Uh, like I said, I recently uh, quit my job to get back to making films again, and I'll be uh, doing more of the podcasts and also adding a new podcast about my uh, projects and also interviews with other guests and talking other films, talking other filmmakers about their films and uh, other stuff that I'm going to be discussing. So anyway, thank you all and uh, Eugenie Rocks. Check it out. Adios. Eugenia is trapped in both. Or is she trapped? Is she a victim or a willing partner in both? Her father, a famous writer in a tortured mind, wants her total submission. Not only of body, but of spirit and soul. Based on the Marquis de Sade. Freely adapted to our times. Perverse love of a father for his daughter, or is she his daughter, leads to all kinds of debauchery through his masterful use of psychology, which reaches deep into the dark recesses of the mind. Submission. Submission to the point of transgressing every rule, every taboo. Submission to the point of murder and harakiri. 
Is he a madman or a genius? Eugenia, a psychological thriller that ranges all the way from shrewd insight into warped minds to eroticism and sadism and sudden death. And love, for no one is beyond love and redemption. But love here came too late. Violence and diabolical murder win out. Coming soon to a theater near you. Hey, buddies, fellow Franco fans. It is I, your host, Jason Rudy, from Desperate Visions Productions, a Sacramento, California-based filmmaking production company. I've made uh, 12 films. Uh, we have some of the trailers on YouTube. And uh, check out the different stuff, because uh, by the time you hear this episode in about April, we should maybe be on pre-production on some things or doing some um, early test shoots and doing different things. So, But speaking of test shoots, uh, there's a lot of uh, shooting in Eugene with cameras and such. And uh, we did watch this film, Eugenie. And uh, that'll be my segue for this um, episode 29 and film 29 in sync. So trying to be in sync. And speaking of in sync, we have a guest that used to be in the band in sync, Mr. Eric Whitwell. Bye, bye, bye. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So um, this is uh, Eugenie, uh, made in 1970. And I will read the synopsis. And there is quite a synopsis on this. You. Eugenie lives in a beautiful house near Berlin with her father, Albert Raddick, a writer specializing in the study of erotic literature. Every day, she grows closer to her father and more and more interested in his work. One day, reading a book in his library, she discovers that her father's true passion arises from a combination of sadism and sexuality. Raddick, far from angry at Eugenie's snooping, begins to tutor his daughter in the philosophy of libertinage. The two become lovers, obsessed with murder, sadism, rape, and cruelty. They decide to commit a perfect, motiveless crime. With an alibi artfully arranged, the Raddicks travel to Brussels, Posing as amateur photographers, they murder a beautiful model. Everything goes as planned. Everything goes to plan. That's interesting. At a party celebrating his latest book, Raddick is feted by the usual hangers-on, while a mysterious figure, Attila Tanner, keeps his distance. Eugenie speaks to him, and he reveals that he's an aficionado of Raddick's writings. She invites him to the house. Tanner begins to probe the most intimate details of the Raddick's lives, implying that he knows the truth. Later, Eugenie and her father commit a second crime, killing a young hitchhiker they pick up on the road. After a string of further killings, alluded to only in passing, 
Raddick decides to add some variety. He instructs his daughter to form a relationship with a young trumpeter called Paul, whose innocent love can then be crushed, driving him to suicide. All goes to plan. Eugenie is mean to Paul, who sinks into despair. However, despite her precious attitudes, Eugenie falls in love and reveals the truth to Paul. When Eugenie's father discovers her betrayal, he assaults Eugenie with a pair of scissors before killing himself. Wow. So, Eric, what did you think about the film? Uh, this was a really good movie. This was yeah, it's one, this is one of the better Franco films I've seen, for sure. Yeah. Um, I could definitely recommend it to people. You could follow it. The, the plot made sense. The characters made sense. Like There wasn't anything out of left field. You know, but right. There's a linear storyline and a structure, and and follows three acts and all that thing. Yeah, no, it was yeah, it was it was solid. Uh, it was an entire movie. It was an, a, like a, from begin to end. It was a complete movie. Yeah. And speaking of complete things, let's go over the complete Franco <laughs> list before we talk about the film. Yeah. Um, highs and lows, according to the list. Uh, first off, no body of water. There was a puddle and a fountain, but. Uh, yeah, which of course no body of water means no sailboat or no, no boats. Uh, palm trees, no. no. A lot of bear trees, which you told me that when you see bear trees, they make you think of brain stems. Yeah, it just well when they when there's the, just the roundness of the top of the tree with all the the, the branches is kind of yeah. I could like kind of see that after you said that. I could see like the little like the lines firing off. Yeah. Um, so, uh, of course, with no palm trees, you have no jungle sound effects, of course. Definitely not. No, this is winter in, like, Berlin. <laughs> but, number six, chained up person, yes. Yes. The female model was chained up. Yes. They, they had, did they, chain yeah, her. They chained her up around the ankles and around the hands. And I didn't think about that until just now, actually. Well, it's kind of crazy to me, too, because I thought in this movie there would be a lot more of that. You know, like, yeah. according to the title, I'm like, okay, I bet you there's going to be a lot of women chained up in this. So, yeah. I was kind of surprised that it was a real kind of mild, but there was one chained up woman uh number seven dance scenes on stage stripping let's see they're stripping and uh there's no stages really so there's kind of two okay so there's kind of two scenes that kind of convey to it oh so, yeah no i'm so I'm sorry you're all right the 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 lady yeah no i take that back there is the lady in the black sweatpants that when they go to paris and say oh we're gonna go which i was gonna talk about in the notes but yeah, i'll yeah, say yeah. a little bit here they go oh yeah we're gonna go see this really fantastic show that everybody raves about and it's a woman topless wearing black like skin tight sweatpants and sashaying left and right, almost like the nightmares come at night. Yeah, very lazy kind of Super dance, lazy. and people are just mesmerized by her performance. Yeah, it's a shitty fucking club. So she or, wasn't really stripping, but she was no. dancing on a stage. And then there's another scene where um, and she's topless, so I'll count topless. that. Yeah, 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 so you know, well, Solida Murata does do a strip, oh, yeah. strip, strip you know, tease. Yeah, yeah, a drunk strip tease. Uh, so n- cute. Number eight. Cl- uh, club scenes, yes. Dancing, yes. I, I don't think so. Um, a lot of people like standing around talking and watching, but yeah. I know that. Number nine, jazz music, yes. Number ten, excessive zooms. Yeah. Yeah, there was excessive zooms. Yeah. Yes. Not crazy, but enough. Not to the degree of the last movie, uh, the or not the last movie, but uh, the nightmares. Yeah, nightmares come at night. Yeah, yeah. That was excessive. Film 27. Uh, but... There was less zooms, but there was more of this. Number 11, out-of-focus shots. Many, many out-of-focus fucking shots. 
some artistic that made sense, of course, but some that are just unnecessary. We're yeah. laughing, especially of Paul Mueller and of uh, Lena. I mean, I mean of um, Soldad. Yeah, close ups and that. Um, let's see, Is it number twelve mirror shots. Yes, I caught a few mirror shots. Yeah. Uh, mirror shots driving in his car, uh, walking down the stairs. There's a tilted mirror at the second club to go see Paul play. There's uh, a few other mirror shots in there. Some mirror reflections of the puddles Eric caught, <laughs> and uh, there's 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 a few in there. Yeah. Um, Thirteen mind control theme, kind of. Kind of. The, the the daughter becomes obsessed with the father's work and his teaching, so she becomes. She says, "I I, I submit my will to you." And when, when she first gives herself into him, so it's almost like a a whole, you know, I am your clay to mold, like in in what you see fit, you know. Well, one way I was thinking of it too, how it could apply, was the fact that I don't want to get too because we'll, we'll get into the whole movie, but right. um, the whole way that he raised her was almost like. Mind control, because, yeah. Like he's grooming her. Yeah, he groomed her, her, you know, her entire life. So, in a way, that would could be a form of mind control. That's funny. Yeah, I didn't think about that whole grooming thing. It's almost like a more of a modern term, but it's an age old tradition. But yeah, that's what a lot of this was with this yeah. film. He says, "I waited till your mom was, you know, until you were born." For anyway, so yeah, so um, uh, number fourteen, magic tongue scenes. <laughs> no magic lips. Yes, and. Um, Sold out Miranda's magic lips, but no magic well, tongue. Paul Mueller did have his tongue out at one point. Yeah, yeah, he used to get his tongue out. It was funny. I was like, what's he doing? He just, all of a sudden, he's watching Sold out. He's like, started sticking his tongue out. Like he was Michael Jordan or some shit. Uh, well, he was wearing red, like Michael Jordan and shit, like in the outfit. That's so, true. Fucking MJ. He is the MJ. <laughs> he's a PM, not MJ. Uh, let's see. Uh, what we got here? Number 15, red light. Yes, red lights and orange lights. Yeah. Actually, I caught. They're really cool orange light shots, too. But, yeah, definitely red light shots in the club. Yeah. And, of course, 16, we're taking off because it's not a Dietrich thing. So that's going to be kind of moved off the list from now. Uh, sheepskin, masturbate with sea item, nothing like that. Uh, number 17, mad scientists. Not really. No. no. I can't say that. Uh, 18, fish tank shots. None. No, I didn't catch you yeah. that. 19, talking parrot. No. No. And finally, number twenty in credits. Yes or no? Yes. It said the end. It said the end with Jess Franco's <laughs> face, almost like a "fuck you." Here, here's my face, and it says the end, bitch. So well, I don't even say that, but but uh, yeah. So um, let's see what we want to talk about on here. Uh, let me do. Uh, we did that. Okay. So uh, what what's some of your early? What's one of the first things you thought when you first started watching this? Um. Wow, well, that, it's, that much, huh? Yeah, yeah. It's, well, <laughs> well, Solo de Miranda is beautiful. Yeah. So beautiful. And um, there was a lot of really cool scenes where she's sitting down. She had one way of she was sitting the whole time with her legs up. Yeah. And, um, just the, the colors. She was hugging her knees basically really tight to her chest, which was almost like her body language of she's so controlled and so walled off and she's so holding herself in almost like she's holding back this wave that's gonna burst you know yeah and, and also like it, it gave her this look of like this youthful innocence and you know also it's just a yeah so there's a lot of really beautiful shots but i i dug the the plot like i really dug the plot to it yeah this this has been one of the more movie movie of his thing compared to especially the Dietrich stuff and like some of the more experimental things it's a little less movie and more just watching it and it's just the Jess Franco experience this is actually a fucking real film you know um, they shot this like uh, January 
21st of February 12th of 1970. That's interesting. Oh, shit. Wow, dude. Okay, so my birthday is October 13th, 1973. This played in Italy October 12th, 1973. That's oh, my gosh. Cool. That's pretty fucking cool. That's, that's awesome. The uh, next day out comes Jason. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it actually premiered, uh, well, they got the French visa on September 10th, 70. So I'll start from the beginning. Shooting dates, January 21st to February 12th, 1970. Uh, played Brussels, uh, Belgium, April 5th, 1973. French visa issued September 10th, 73. Played Italy, Rome, October 12th, 1973. And France, January 20th, which is uh, 1974. Uh, theatrical running time, 85 minutes. France, 82 minutes. Italy. Um, if you want to really want to read about this, this this uh, film has quite a bit of uh, pages done to it in this book. Of all the reviews that I've read, this has like got a lot of words. Uh, Eugenie is unlike any previous Franco film. Its minimalism, its purity of purpose, its darkness and perversity strip away the trappings of horror, the lushness of Euro erotica, and the pretensions of art cinema, leaving only the core of his sensibility. It's a film of the 1970s, whereas even the best of Franco's 1960s films were somehow wedded to his demands of an older kind of cinema. Until now, just Franco had been testing his metal against the various genres he loved as, as a boy learning how to make movies commercially, swiftly, and imaginatively. With Eugenie, however, a change occurs. The break with the past will not be a clean one. There are still a few stragglers and exceptions to come, especially in 1970 and 71. But in general, from here on, Jess Franco, the Spaniard who made a splash with musicals and spy stories and occasional horror films, settles down to shape something more precisely his own. He has honed his skills, chosen his theme, tasted freedom and discovered the particular mood of dark mesmeric eroticism that he would summon again and again in the years to come. In the 1960s, Franco learned how to make movies. In Eugenia, he learns how to make just Franco films. That's very, very funny. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, Franco on screen. Franco's role is dealt with the details above. It's a shame that the choice of dubbing artists for the English language version is so inappropriate. Tanner should sound insinuating, sardonic, a little shy. Instead, he's a booming macho baritone. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Okay, and then I also wanted to talk about, before we go over the film, um, other versions. Because um, that's was weird, because the DVD case says Eugenie de Sade, but it's Eugenie. So, um, the anamorphic DVD release of Eugenie from Blue Underground bears the on-screen title Eugenia, a 1984 copyright date. And frequently, though not always, dubbed Soldat Miranda as Eugenia rather than Eugenie. It would seem that Eurocene wanted to re-release the film and re-establish their copyright. Franco took the opportunity to sort out a glitch on the music track at a point where Lesur whispers in Tanner's ear. All other versions have the title Eugenie. Blue Underground marketed the film under the cover title Eugenia de Sade, a title drawn from a Belgian film poster which, to my knowledge, it's never appeared as a theatrical screen title. Um, the Blue Underground DVD of Eugenie could almost be considered the definitive version were it not for a couple of very curious details which emerged from an English-language trailer included among the extras. The trailer bears the title Eugenia, but with the old Eugenie font nitpickers and borrows a musical theme from Eugenie, the story of her journey into a version. But what's really interesting, in the presence of shots from two scenes not included in any currently available versions of the film, in the first of these we see Eugenie undressing and kneeling before an unknown older woman. The scene takes place in Eugenie's bedroom, note the teddy bear and clock on the bedside table. 
In the other, we see Mueller throttling a woman on the bed in Eugenie's bedroom. The same woman, I think so. Both are wearing blue panties. Then rising to his feet and staring into the camera. And no point in any currently available version of the film does this older victim appear. Notice, too, that the arrangement of the books on the bedside table is identical to the scene in which we see Eugenie um, writhing on her bed in front of her father. This would suggest that the missing scenes were filmed contemporaneously, maybe even on the same day. If not, you would expect the pile of books to have been tidied away or at least rearranged. It would seem at one point in its history the film included another seduction and murder. It's possible, of course, that the material was shot but never used. It's also possible that a longer cut of this essential film once played in the Sex and Was Europe, one that currently eludes us on DVD and Blu-ray. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, so they have her billed as Susan Corday, and I know she's Susan Corda in a lot of the other films, which is weird. Um, we get nudity at, like, seven seconds in. <laughs> right away. Yeah, right away. Um, where we have Solod and Paul murder a woman on the snuff film, which we see. Um, and uh, you have uh, Out of Focus Jess in the... Uh, quite a bit in the beginning um, and then uh, we see Soldad we see her in the beginning she's like wounded and uh, Jess Franco's talking to her and she's and basically you see her kind of beat up and on her deathbed literally and uh, she tells Tanner the tale of what has happened with her and her father kind of tells a backstory. so you start off where you know she's going to die or, or just beat up or whatever um, and, uh, so then, yeah, one thing that really struck me was sold out showing her ass quite a bit. This film. <laughs> I just fucking froze. She has such a great ass. Right. Ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she does. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's yeah, phenomenal. Yeah. And, uh, still Eric too is one thing that's so beautiful about her is like, she's one of the women that like you see her nude is one thing you see her dressed and all these different dresses and stuff she's just so goddamn beautiful that like when she puts on different clothes it's just amazing to watch just everything about her you know, <laughs> such style and so 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 beautiful um uh yeah it's funny well one thing i was laughing too like i'd said before they said the show tonight the best in paris and it's that slow dancer in fucking black sweatpants you know yeah that wasn't really you know um and uh, just Frank on the film, uh, Attila Tanner, he's quite a snappy dresser. He wears like a red shirt and then an orange shirt and fucking cool, like fucking scarves and jackets. And, you know, he's and, and it's funny, too. Uh, Paul Mueller's the writer and they talk about him writing the Necronomicon. So that's interesting. A little yeah. H.P. Lovecraft, little nod there. Um, but let's see. So, OK, so first, well. Actually, the first murder is the actual snuff film. The snuff film. Yeah. That's, Even though... Chrono- not yeah. chronologically, but in the film. Right, because I think that was... Cause that, see, but that's interesting because in the beginning we see Jess Franco and he's basically watching uh, Paul Mueller murder a woman mm-hmm. with Soldot, right? Yeah, he's okay. watching the snuff film. Yes, yeah, so he's watching the snuff film and that's <laughs> a victim, but that victim is not anyone that we see in the film no a couple that he goes so I wonder where in the story that would take place because in theory if you watch the film it kind of follows a, a story and they don't talk about that kill in any other part of the film well there was the alluding to where it mentioned that um, after they killed the first hitchhiker that they went on and killed a few other hitchhikers so they did mention that okay. they had, I must have missed that part they, okay. they did commit other murders but they didn't show them yeah so that must have been that okay yeah. okay that, that makes sense I just, yeah because I just saw that I was like wait a minute that doesn't make sense yeah okay okay yeah um 
But yeah, so like the first real murder that we see is of Alice Arno, and it's her first appearance in a Jess Franco film. She's went on to do quite a few Jess Franco films. And uh, it's really cool. So basically, Paul Mueller and um, Soldat Miranda decide to plot this murder where they first go to a club and they watch a stripper and a comedian and a bunch of other acts. So they basically let their faces be seen and then they sneak away, change their outfits, and then jump on a plane or a train or somewhere to Brussels. Yeah. And to be a photographer, to go into a club where you can hire different models and do photo shoots with them, nude photo shoots with them, and whatever else you want to do, basically, for a fee. So Paul Mueller comes dressed up in his snazzy red outfit with his uh, <laughs> glasses. Yeah, let's see, I got a picture here. Guy looks like so, a golfer. Yeah, he's got this cool fucking plaid cap and this red sunglasses. It's kind of like Bono. Yeah. I, think, I think that's what you yeah, call him before, like Bono. Bono in the yeah, yeah, the picture. And uh, he's got the red uh, turtleneck and the plaid scarf, his black driving gloves, and his cool camera. Soldod's got her red floppy hat and her big white rim sunglasses, cool red cape, and almost like Batman and Robin. Yeah. I, I, I kind of dug like one thing I kind of enjoyed that I liked about it was like from the just right before they committed the murder. Yeah. Um, so she would go around his study. She liked to watch him write, and he always he had a lot of books, um, sex old old books on sexual sexuality and and all these things. And she mentioned how she loved to go and like read them. Right. So anyway, so he catches that she's reading one of his one of those books, and so he's like, okay. So she comes home one day and he leaves a note with another book. And she starts to read the book, and the book is all about a girl having sex with her father. Like yeah. it's, it's about like this father and this daughter having like this lustful relationship, and it's almost like he in the letter he says like I think you will enjoy this, and like yeah, well, it's just like okay, planting the seeds, planting the seeds. And that's when she's wearing her <laughs> pink shirt, sitting in the big chair, hugging yeah. her, hugging her knees, yeah, her hair parted right down the middle. <laughs> but it's just kind of funny how he just how he. All right, let me, let me just put this out there. Let's see how this goes. Let's put this out there. And then when he and then he he discovers that she had. I know I jumped ahead. Uh, when he discovered that she had found the book, he had placed it a certain way. And when she placed it back, she had turned it a different way. Yeah, almost like when you're a kid and you like. Well, maybe not for you, but but when I was a kid or whatever, have dad's porn tapes or his dirty magazines. You'd leave a certain way, and you'd know. Okay, if you open the case, you'd see him turned a certain way, and you have to make sure you put them back that way. Yeah, if you turn them the other way, they might know it. Or if you watch something, you have to remember where it was on the tape. Okay, it's one hour, 22 minutes in. So when I'm done, I'll have to put it back to around, right around there so they don't think that I've watched it. You know? Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, we had way different childhoods. Yeah. My, yeah. my porn was a National Geographic. Yeah. <laughs> and me, I got to read. Uh, my parents divorced when I was like probably about eight or nine. So, of course, uh, I was about a nine-year-old kid. I got to look through Hustlers and, you know. Oh, my gosh. Fucking, uh, um What's the yeah 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 it was a hustler that was Larry Flint, Flint one and I remember that was, first saw a lot of that stuff it's like holy shit you know so. I, one time I was standing out in front of this quick stop and uh-huh. um I we I convinced a homeless man I gave him like five bucks or something like that if to jack like, you off no to give me a I didn't realize that what it was but it was it was a Playboy or penthouse it was penthouse humor. Okay. And I saw it, and I didn't realize. And so he bought it for me, and I was like, oh, oh my God, I got porn. It was all cartoons. Yeah, drawings. It was all the drawing yeah, cartoons, yeah, yeah, the comic wow. strips. I was like, oh, my God. Like, 
my first I finally got the nerve yeah. to ask someone to do this and I got the wrong that, one that sounds like you so I just I threw it in someone's sunroof I was riding home and someone had their sunroof open so I just kind of dropped it into their car well yeah, they think it was like a message from God or something <laughs> so, <laughs> thank you thank you God <laughs> But uh, yeah, so speaking of porn, so she, her and her dad get into porn, and then uh, they they decide to. She decides, hey man, I'm totally into everything that you're saying, you're speaking. Yeah. I'm gonna follow you. I, I want to be your disciple. I want to live in this life of unadulterated pleasure, teaching of the facade. We basically want to. Everything depends on our our free uh, our feeling, our our sensations, our our lusts. Yeah, it, nothing else matters. Um, this was the third Dassault film he did after Justine and Eugenie, the story into her perversion. And this would be the third one. This is definitely the most Dassault. Um Episode before this, I'd watch Cries of Pleasure and then watch this back to back. And was, those are two really good ones back to back because it's the same thing of basically all you care about is the person that you're in crime with and everybody else is a victim. And therefore, nobody can trust you. You have no friendships. You have no love, no loyalty. No old age with a person. Everything's just about that immediate sensation. And if a person is deceiving with you to create that lustful um, pair, you know, sooner or later, you're going to turn on that person to get that same sensation. And it's just a matter of time. So, And that's what this film was basically the same mindset, the same philosophy. It was only a matter of time before one betrayed the other. Yeah. And he got jealousy on her. So. But she and she jumped right into it too. So when they yeah. when they went to do the photography, the first murder, yeah, yeah. Um, like you know, she's like, they're like, oh, can we step this up a notch? And, yeah, he goes, know. how much for a little sadism? Or yeah, whatever? and she says, oh, it's an extra hundred francs. Yeah, and then the uh, and Alice Arno goes out. She pulls out some props, different whips, and some chains, and some fake stage blood that she paints on herself and gets herself set. And then she asks her can you assist me? And then, so he sends her over and then she starts putting the chains around her and getting into it and that and stuff. And then they, uh, kill her. Yeah. But I love the, how they did it. She kills her actually. Yeah. And, and, I love how and she did it. The face that she gives, she's stabbing him and really, you know, oh, she's into him. it. Yeah. 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 What was it? What's, what's a thing called that you pick up ice with? Yeah. It's the ice tong. She puts it around tongs, her throat. Yeah. yeah like, the, uh, like the ice tong fucking long pole and she puts it around her neck and squeeze which I caught that she, they use that later in a um, bloody moon so that's one of the kills on that so he recycles the kill on that one um, but it's cool the guy working out front so they come in dressed in red and the guy out front is a black dude wearing like this cool red shirt and he's in front of this like poster on the door of this woman with like face paint on and shit and cool hair and it's a really cool club in, yeah. in Brussels they went to and the guy tells the whole um, rundown of the price and that and they kill the girl and they get away. And the description is just a couple dressed all in red. That's yeah. all the description they had. So they hurry up and they jam back to that club uh, within like the hour or so, hour and a half. The show's still on. And they go back to their seats and everybody comes back and it's like they never left. So that was their alibi. So they get away with that. And life goes on. They do this, this stuff. And then uh, the second murder is they pick up this Austrian hitchhiker and... Uh, <laughs> That scene reminded me of Fingered a little bit later on, the Richard Kern film, um, made in like the early 80s, um, with Lydia Lunch. Uh, so yeah, so basically they like pick up this Austrian, it's cool, um, Soldad, I keep saying Lena, uh, Soldad has a cool voiceover where she's like, she's an idiot, you know, yeah. she like totally puts her down <laughs> right after they pick her up, so that's the totally Dassault, just like, she's, and it's funny too, because it's very class structure, like, they're very, um, 
wealthy and you know um, prestigious and, yeah. and 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 high society, and they like the first person they kill is this like nude model who they don't really the press doesn't really care about. It's just a, her killing. Second one is this Austrian hitchhiker who they kind of say is dumb and not too smart and below them. So her killing is part of the yeah. part of the way it is. You know, like that's her destiny is to like serve them. You know, so they basically take her and uh, Soldad has her change her clothes and gives her a new shirt to wear, which she proceeds to wear open the whole time and yes. show her great tits. Amazing, yeah, which was really nice. Um, and that gal, actually, I will say her name. Actually, let me go ahead and take a break real quick and tell you all the cast. Cool. Uh, Soldad Miranda as Susan Corday, Eugenie Raddick. Paul Mueller as Albert Raddick, Eugenie's stepfather. Andres Monchel as Andre Monchel. Paul, a trumpeter. Greta Schmidt, who's a gal we just talked about. Kitty, she's an Austrian hitchhiker. Um, uncredited, Alice Arno, sadomasochistic photo model. Jesus Franco plays Attila Tanner, a writer. Marius Lesur, man in projection booth with Tanner. That's the very beginning of the film. Uh, Carl Heinz Machkin, comic at the nightclub with a great set. And <laughs> what was your what was your thing on the set? You're like, I was. What is he even saying? Yeah, like, I'm like, yeah. Trying to hear, like these aren't even like complete sentences. Like, yeah, he was just gibberish yeah. about some airport or some shit. Uh, Manuel Marino, man watching nightclub comic. So yeah, so that's uh, so the gal we're talking about is Greta Schmidt. So yeah, she plays Katie, the Austrian hitchhiker, and they basically pay, play a Edward the a, a King Edward yeah. drinking game, and they basically just want to get her drunk and kill her. So they they basically uh, <coughs> uh, sold out plays plays dead first, and if they can wake her and and move her, then she has to strip tease. Yeah, they- and uh, so they wake her and kind of tickle her and stuff and get her to laugh so then she has to get up and she does a very silly but awesome strip tease yes. very comical but goddamn, she looks good with cool boots like, on top she played like drunken like yeah you know, she was like, yeah. like the kind of sloppy but totally still, yeah and, and it and it totally played true she like mm-hmm. totally conveyed that um uh and then uh so they murder the second guy. They put a uh, kind of a cloth on her face and try to like suffocate her. And Soldat kind of like climbs on her and like pins her arms down, which I thought that was kind of a cool move. I'm like Jesus, yeah, you know, it's kind of a scene out of fingered as well with the hitchhiker. Which is funny, actually. That's the hitchhiker move they do with the hitchhiker too. Yeah. That's fucking weird. I realize that's talking makes. it out. Yeah, where the scene where they hit long leg up against the the refrigerator and she hits her head. And Lydia kind of puts her knees on her and holds her down, and the guy's like jacking off over her <laughs> and fingered. And that's basically the same thing. Yeah, like, yeah. Hold her down, man. Instead of jacking off, kills her. Yeah. Um, that's a crazy movie, man. Yeah. And, it's, such a, yeah it's a dope, crazy it movie. Is. Uh, it's a movie that we always play at clubs or play at parties, and then it's always a good way to judge people as the movie fingered if they like it or if they fucking flee in terror and run. You know? <laughs> Which you've had a few people leave after watching it. So a couple gals sometime, but that's another story. Uh, the third murder is Paul, the trumpeter, that uh, the father decides, hey, man, let's go ahead and step up the game. I want you to seduce this guy. He plays in a band. We're going to go there, watch him, and he's kind of by himself in this and that. You're going to bewitch him, pick him up, have a relationship with him, and then dump him. And after a while, come back to him again and build him back up and dump him again, and then he'll commit suicide and we'll watch. And she's like, okay, cool. And she decides to go with that. And then halfway through, she falls in love and decides, hey, man, I kind of want to do this anymore. 
And of course, the father finds out and gets pissed off. But before that happens, um, she has sex with her father, and he looked like American Werewolf in London. Yes, he did. He's a very interesting body frame. You can see all of his bones, all of his ribs, all of his tufts of hair all over his back. Oh, he's hairy. And meanwhile, uh, the trumpet player has no hair at all on his back. No. Totally like night and day. It's very funny. We laugh about that. Um, They both were animalistic because Paul is very much like werewolf and the the trumpet player is very much like Pan. Yeah, yeah. And he's like totally hairless from the waist up and on the waist down he's fucking Sasquatch. (laughs) But yeah, Eric's like, he's like fucking Pan, which he does. He looks like he has fur legs. Like goat feet. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, and then so of course... um, See, it's funny, too, because I thought she was still working him when she said this and that, and the father comes in to kill him. But she actually did fall yeah. in love is from reading this, and then she actually did. So, Because I, I was thinking she was still trying to pull the angle yeah. on him again, but she wasn't. Um, but, yeah, so um, – but, no, it's it's definitely, like Stephen Thrower said, it's it's a huge turning point in Franco's career. Um, everybody's really good in it. Franco even plays a good – Good, good role. Except for the course, the dubbing sucks. But, but he's good. He's very sweaty and kind of greasy and <laughs> kind of like a follower. Which he played that character a few times, where he's kind of like stalks somebody and kind of watching after him. Um, it was interesting too. The scene with the model and the photographer. I kind of was thinking it was almost like Franco, where he's just like filming this hot chick. She's nude and then she's getting killed, and it's like S and M shit and stuff. And that was kind of funny. And has his faithful accomplice, the beautiful young woman, that will do everything fourth film you know which sold out in this case and then lena later on um but uh yeah so no it was good all the performance great paul Mueller was really fucking good really really he he plays a lot of different roles and in this he's really evil yeah he definitely was evil and there's a couple of scenes where his face looked like satan i thought and i'd remarked that he would he would have played a really good devil definitely more, more than uh yeah pervert fucks in uh portuguese none so. <laughs> um of course sold odd fucking rules in this movie um, she's awesome has a lot of cool outfits a lot of cool different style boots um very cool dresses um eric was a big fan of her pubic hair <laughs> well big is definitely a word yeah big <laughs> it's, it's massive she has a very beautiful shaped bush in this well, i'm not shape it's just it's it's natural it's it's from her waist all the way to her. I think it's because she's so small and petite in every aspect. Like she has, yeah. she's very small and petite, but then her bush is like, hello, look at me. Like it's just like this dark, dark black. It's almost like the sheepskin rug, yeah. but it's just black. And it's, yeah. it's, it's, got just, the, it's got the cool devil curl to it too. It's just, yeah, it's massive. Uh, the scenes of her watching the trouble player with the orange on her face when yeah. she's watching him and seducing him with holding the drink. That was really fucking cool. Oh, yeah. uh, those scenes are amazing. Um, if she ever looked at me like that, I would just melt. Yeah, no, she was she was amazing in this. Um, of course, it would be because she would be coming back from the dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see what else I want to say about this. Oh yeah, also too, I caught uh, reusing of some furniture um, on her bed. She has like this green sheet and like some of those pillows. And then later on at Paul's house, you see the same furniture, same green stuff, and the green sheet, the green um, and, and the pillows. And also Erica caught. Uh, that room where Paul the Trumpeter is and um, Soldat is the same room and um, Nightmares Come at Night. And we looked it up and sure enough, it was. Yeah. So that was a good catch. Um, yeah. So he's like, hey, is that the same room, same window? And I was like, oh, let me start talking and figure it out. And then sure enough, it sure was because we caught the bed they're laying on. It was the same bed frame I could catch. I was like, that's the same same type of, you know, 
It, it, just like Can't in that be. movie, it also had just some random thing on the wall where it's a picture of these feet. Oh, yeah. Big, oh, my feet. Or oh, something. my feet. Yeah. And Eric's oh, like, my foot or something like that. Yeah. yeah. He's like, and it's in English. <laughs> in Paris or Brussels or wherever it's supposed to be. What the fuck? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, it's definitely, this is a film that, I mean, of course, I watch all these for the podcast, but this is one I definitely will watch again. Yeah. And uh, watching uh, the characters he wrote in this and characters he wrote in Cries of Pleasure, uh I definitely want to write a film with the Marquis de Sade type influence in it as well. Kind of see a lot of possibilities in that, and that's something that uh, I think could be really good. So be on the lookout for that soon. Well, not soon, but I got some other other stories to tell first. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this had a lot of cool other titles. Uh, the Saw 2000, that's interesting. I don't know. What the fuck, 2000? Yeah, that's weird. The Saw 2000. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, Eugenie de Sade, Eugenia Shaw's Eugenia. Uh, yeah, so. Cool. Well, um, anything else you want to say about the film? Any notes you had or anything that I know is not as much noteworthy because you're more paying attention to the film. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't really like, it wasn't a lot of things that I felt like I was going to forget. A couple of things, but, yeah. you know, I did. But no, it's just a really solid movie from beginning to end. Great plot. It, the music really pushed it the whole way through. Yeah, good call on music. Uh, yeah. Bruno Nicolai did the music in this and he did some of the early stuff uh, with Franco and he did uh, Nightmare's Come at Night and Night and Women and I think he did Justine or uh, Eugenie one of the original ones before this and did some other stuff but he also did tons of Giallo stuff and he's he's done so many so many cool films in the 70s and 80s if you look him up you'll see all the cool films that he has scored and done music for but yeah the music in this is yeah, so awesome yeah it really pushed through the whole like anytime it was a music you're like okay this is weird you know like it's yeah. uh, made it very powerful but the trailer though I thought was a little bit more um, but of course it's the trailer you're trying to sell the film but the, the trailer was too explicit and too like I think it, it tried to throw it and basically told the whole film in the trailer yeah. told it showed you all the footage all the sex, all the... I mean, if you're watching this movie, it feels like it's wall-to-wall this way, and it's really not that way. No. It's more elegant, and, and it's definitely evil and, and sadistic, and it's got its stuff, but it's not a total fucking schlocky, you know... Air throw balls to the wall, every dies, shit goes down, you know? It's not that way at all. Yeah. So... But the, it's kind of interesting, though, that it did end with a, just a close-up of Jess Franco's face and just yeah. at the end, like, yeah. not her dying on the bed or anything like that, which would have made more sense, that, yeah. you know, since she's kind of like the center of the movie, but it's all of just picture him, and you can see his eye frozen behind the glasses, yeah. it's, a, it's a screenshot, whatever, and... But, you know, in the end, though, it is fitting because, like, like, like he's writing, this is like the first jess franco film yeah so yeah. it's like i mean you know of his style of who he decides to be and it's like so that's it's cool, cool man that that's he, cool to think about like that though yeah so and that's he, the way you see it you know and you mentioned earlier too about like how he would sail from this to his yeah maybe that's what sailboats sail. are now yeah. maybe that's what the sailboats were. Yeah, yeah i know so there's always that theme you see all the time but but yeah unfortunately being in brussels and france uh there's no uh that oh yeah speaking of two filming um last thing basically um talk about this course in the opening but yeah it's basically a lot of it shot in uh, berlin and paris um and uh a few kilometers outside of berlin uh so yeah that's where a lot of this was filmed so check it out um yeah of course there's uh, two other thing i was mentioning there's a cool cathedral scene which i mentioned 
even if churches and cathedrals aren't used in the film, he always showcases them in a cool scene in the movie. And there were some cool ones with the old and the new technology, which was kind yeah. of cool in the beginning. We see that this cool camera shop next to the church, next to these other BMW or Mercedes or something buildings. Yeah, that was really cool. That was a yeah. really cool shot. I guess that was in Berlin as well. So yeah, um, yeah. So we watched the uh, Blue Underground DVD. Hopefully, they'll put this on Blu-ray soon. Uh, you know, Blue Underground should, should be on Blu-ray. They've been putting out other films of theirs DVDs. They've been upgrading to Blu-rays recently. So hopefully, this will be on their radar because this would be a good fit for Blu-ray. Um, but yeah, this is a uh, Eugenie Desaad. Uh, Eugenie is the actual proper title, even though the fucking DVD says Desaad. It's just I don't know, whatever. It's like they have to spoon feed. It's based on a Desaad mentality. It's like you know, okay, so. sell a couple of extra units. Yeah, way. exactly. Put Desaad the title, and that way it hits all the marks a little more. Evenly. All the perverts run out for it. Exactly. <laughs> easy, easy, hey, easy, I'm easy, easy, easy. Hey, I'm with you. Exactly. <laughs> I am one. Turn the mirror on yourself there, buddy. Oh, I don't know. I'm standing full out there. So, all righty, man. Well, I think this is going to wrap up to this part of the podcast. But, yeah, check out Eugenie. I gave it fucking thumbs up. I think it's fucking badass. I think you agree. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Good. Great movie. Great movie. Check it out. All right. All right. Beautiful nights. Beautiful days. (laughs)